All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you here from New York City on the 23rd day of May, 2017. And I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises coming along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, Dynasert, Inc., Trimetals Mining, Telson Resources, Klondike Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., and GMV Minerals Corp. Now, all of these companies are sponsors to this show because I have chosen them. Each of them are recommendations in my newsletter, which is written for the benefit of my paid subscribers. I do not charge money from, from the companies to say nice things about them. I pass on the stories of companies to my subscribers who pay me for my independent ideas and the companies I write about are companies that I have independently decided are worthy of them, of telling about them. So that, in fact, is why I am one of the newsletter writers that participate in the Metals Investor Forum in Vancouver. The next one that I'll be attending is in November. The companies that are sponsors to this show were invited to be sponsors because I value them highly and in all cases... When there are some significant news events, I try to pass them on, uh, sometimes on the show if possible, but uh, for sure in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Now, one company that is not currently a sponsor is goldmoney.com. Uh, However, it is a company that I cover in my letter, and I have ser- have had several uh, representatives of that company on the show, James Turk, Alistair McLeod, Roy Sabog, Daryl McMullen, for example. Uh, I have them on because I value the services. Not only do I like gold money as an investment, but also uh, I, I value their services and what they can mean to you. That's why I talk about them and have them uh, appear on this show so that you become familiar with the services that gold money provides, which leads me to a question from a regular listener to this show named Alan. He's from Australia. Alan wrote uh, recently suggesting that he he recently bought some gold through gold money thanks to this show but he says he really is uh, he wants to know is it possible to track the financials of this company now he's put his money in gold money wants to make sure that it's going to be secure well happily the answer to that is yes because gold money is a public company trades on the Toronto exchange I expect it will shortly be trading in New York on the New York exchange from what I understand as of uh, December 31st, the company had 117 million 
in tan, uh, it had 117 million in net worth. It had tangible net worth of 60 million, of which 56.8 million of that was in cash and short-term liquid assets. So the balance sheet is strong. I recently met up with Roy Sabag in New York, and he was suggesting the first quarter numbers will be coming out uh, soon, will be very strong. And I plan to uh, dig into Gold Money's financial numbers in my weekly newsletter as soon as the company publishes those numbers. Uh, so those of you who may have the same concern that Alan has, uh, those of you who want to know that their money, uh, their investments, their gold is secure uh, at uh, Gold Money may want to consider subscribing to my newsletter, uh, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can do that by going to miningstocks.com. Well, I've titled today's show, Does the World Have Too Much Capital? Mark Chandler visits for the first time. Michael Oliver is with me uh, now, and we'll be hearing from him in just a moment. And Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources will be with me after the first commercial break. We're picking up from where journalist and presidential advisor Charles Conant left off over a century ago, renowned foreign exchange strategist uh, and Professor Mark Chandler squares off against conventional, conventional understanding of international economics by suggesting the challenge modern economics faces is not scarcity, but in fact surplus. Indeed, that sounds strange to me because when I studied economics at Rutgers University decades ago, I learned that economics is all about allowing markets to be free so that they can allocate scarce resources as efficiently as possible. But then... My university days occurred before it was widely recognized that the central bankers possessed godly powers of speaking wealth into being. Last I knew, speaking wealth into being was only something that creator God was capable of doing. So have central bankers now become transcendent beings capable of defying the laws that exist within the four dimensions of time and space, such that humans no longer have any, any lack of ability to create heaven on earth? Or are we really talking about surpluses for the top 1%? and massive shortages for everyone else? Or could it be that the Austrian concept of malinvestment is the problem, so that with unlimited amounts of money creation, you have malinvestment, leading to surpluses in some areas, and then massive shortages and dislocations in others. Whatever the case, the widely acclaimed Mark Chandler will will talk about his new book, Political Economy uh, of Tomorrow. Political Economy of Tomorrow. Mark Chandler will be with me at about half past the hour. One thing there is never a shortage of, and that's gold, and Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources will be with me after the first commercial break, as I just mentioned. He'll be talking about that company's quest for finding the next Whitwater's Rand deposit in northwestern Australia. Certainly some great strides towards that, it would seem. We'll be talking to Quentin right after the first uh, first, uh, commercial break, but right now we do have Michael Oliver with me. OliverMSA.com. Go there, learn more about Oliver Sir, uh, Michael's service. Thank you, Michael, for being with me again today. Great to be here. Michael, uh, the U.S. dollar index, you were telling us if it breaches 99 at the, at the end of uh, the month, that's a pretty sure sign that we're into a, a, well, it's a pretty sure sign that we're in a new bear market for the dollar. How's it looking to you now, and what might that mean for some of the other markets that we like to follow on this show? Well, actually, we had a revision to that. It was a monthly close at 99 or lower, we had said, uh, beginning of the year. Uh, and the, the dollar index, which is heavily weighted by the uh, euro, um, probed toward that uh, early in the year, went back up to the highs, 102, 103 level, came back down toward 99, slipped below it a month or so ago, rallied back up again, refused to close a month below it. Right now, we're trading, we've traded below 97 this week. 
the intra-week, though, uh, we had a weekly sell signal if it closed at 97.50 or lower, and that was achieved last week. So, so we're bearish. Uh, okay. Not just short-term bearish. We're bearish based on annual momentum downturn. Usually, annual momentum trends measured by the momentum readings uh, against like a 36-month average or a three-year average. It was a long-term average we're measuring against. Not whether you cross above or below it, but the structures that are developed when you plot the price in relation to, in other words, you oscillate it versus that average. You come up with a visually different picture of a given market. So while you look at the dollar index on a chart, and you're not quite sure looking at it now whether it's breaking down or not, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's still four or five points above last year's price low, for example. Mm -hmm. But when you run an annual momentum chart, it's so clear it smacks you in the face. Uh, A blind man can see it almost. It's it's a terrific structure. It's broken. Now, uh, evidence, you want want to look at other assets uh, in the world markets, the four asset categories, uh, to to see a reflection of that if you can. And I was just uh, perusing through some spreads today spreads being a relative performance measurements of uh, A versus B. In this case, I was looking at sectors within the S&P. And uh, in running a spread of the XLI ETF, which is the industrial sector ETF, in other words, the companies that make the big equipment and sell it around the world and so forth, mm-hmm. that spread is pushing toward a triple-top breakout above wow. highs uh, going back several years. Now, that would make some sense if the dollar is breaking down, right. that sector relative, to, and that doesn't mean it's going to go up in price. It just means it's going to do better than the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would make sense then that that spread is doing what it's doing, uh, namely looking very hefty, like it's going to go up big time, uh, uh, again, on a relative basis. So that would reaffirm what we see in the downside in the dollar. Other, other indicators of that would be uh, pending breakout structures in commodities, Gold's already broken out, but uh, the gold miners have had a big pullback, and they now have a structure, uh, frankly, about 20 cents above today's high on the GDX index. If they can overcome by much, uh, it says they're gone. They're on the second wave up. They're refreshing their bull market that Mm -hmm. signaled last February. Uh, Grains, similar pending structures, uh, literally hairs above where the market is now in the corn, soybeans, and wheat. So a lot of things that would affirm a dollar down are present. Uh, right. So I think it's it's not just the dollar; it's 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 being echoed in other markets. Yeah, well, certainly one of the things I like about your work, uh, Michael, not only the fact that it's been spot on almost every instance that I've been following, at least the markets that I'm following, is uh, this uh, understanding of the interrelationships, as you just point out. It's, uh, it makes a lot of sense. It, it's not none of these markets act in a in a vacuum. Well, with just a minute left here, uh, the equity market though is stubbornly refusing. I mean, three of your four major take plate tectonics. Uh, are now, assuming mm-hmm. that you're right about the dollar, are now heading in the directions you've been talking about. But the uh, equity market's still being stubborn, aren't they? Yeah, it's being stubborn, and it's uh, right now the S and P's trading. Uh, oh my, where it was three months ago. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, it won't break down. It, uh, I had a number for last week that it dropped precisely to the number and refused to and hot footed it out of there. It was twenty three fifty three on the S and P. It could not close the week there, and it traded there and said gone. Rally back up again. Uh, the numbers rise each week. Uh, I'm a pending bear on the S and P and and the broad equity markets, the developed equity markets. It is not the emerging on the emerging markets. I'm bullish. Yeah. Uh, 
but uh, it, it looks like a matter of when it's going to break down, not whether uh, they may try to hold it off until next quarter, but I don't see upside sustainability. All right. It does not well, apply to the market. <laughs> all right. Well, very good, yeah. Michael. Thank you so much for being Thank with you, us Jay. again. It's always a pleasure having you. It's uh, it, it just I, I always look forward to these discussions. Thank you so much for being with us, and we'll look to do it again next week if possible. Folks, that is all the time for this seg- uh, segment. Uh, we are going to break, but don't go away. Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources, my top pick, my favorite stock, actually. Um, so I'm really looking forward to what Dr. Henning has to say about the progress being made on his Beaton's Creek project in northwestern Australia. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Telson Resources is building a new gold mine in Durango State that is destined to become one of the highest grade gold producers in Mexico. Telson plans to commence production in early 2018 to mine over 1,000 tons per day by the end of the first year. Telson presents an exciting opportunity to investors seeking to position themselves in an exciting and robust new undervalued gold mine opportunity. Telson Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol TSN and on the OTCBB under symbol SOHFF. TriMetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. TriMetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. TriMetals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. TriMetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. Uh, he is the president and CEO of Novo Resources. It is my top pick. It's uh, the company that I own more shares of than any other in my own personal portfolio. So, obviously, I'm biased, and I want to hear good things only from Dr. Henning. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with him, he is uh, has an extensive experience as an exploration geologist, having worked for companies like Homestake Mining, Newcrest Mining, Newmont Mining, and then more recently, uh, more junior mining companies as well. But he's employing the skills that he's developed over many years 
and the ideas that he has developed, uh, his independent ideas to take him on paths that few other geologists have dared to tread and some that I find extremely interesting, and that's what we want to talk to him about uh, today. Uh, Toronto, it trades, uh, Novo trades in Toronto under the symbol NVO. You can buy it in the States, as I have under the symbol NSRPF. 104.7 million shares outstanding trading. The last time I looked here yesterday or today, around 58 cents in U.S. money, giving it a market cap around 61 million uh, U.S. dollars. Thanks for joining me again, Dr. Henning. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned the Witwatersrand, the greatest discovery ever on Earth. Talk to our listeners who may not be familiar with the Witwatersrand. What is the magnitude of that discovery, and what gives you the nerve to think that you might be able to, at least that you're hunting for one? Sure, not a problem. Look, uh, the Witwatersrand Basin is a sedimentary basin it's located in South Africa. And to put it in perspective, it's produced uh, roughly a third of all the gold ever produced on Earth. It is a very, very large basin uh, depository of gold, we'll call it. It's produced on the order of 1.6 billion ounces. It has resources and reserves on the order of another billion ounces uh, remaining. And quite frankly, there's, there's probably a lot more than that. Uh, these mines get deep, you know, they, they have certain limits they can mine to, but uh, the deposits extend well beyond some of those uh, existing mines. Now, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about the size of it, but it's, it, to put it in bigger context, or, uh, you know, a, a, I would say a, a more complete context, you also have to understand that, that the Witz Basin is really one of the oldest gold deposits on Earth. It formed at a time uh, way back in what's called the Archean period. It's very, very early stage in Earth's history, about 2.9 billion years ago. And these sedimentary rocks uh, were laid down at a time when the, the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere was changing. It was uh, changing from largely oxygen deficient to oxygen bearing. Uh, that was a product of the, the evolution of photosynthesis. And as photosynthesis came about, uh, my view is that the uh, the gold that was in seawater, this is soluble gold in seawater, was basically precipitated or fixed during that period of time, and it was captured by those sediments. So it's you know it's a very unique environment, very very uh, uh, unique period on Earth. It really is the start, basically, of the the world, world's gold cycle, if you will. Mm-hmm. Now, what's important about the Vits uh, is that it. It sits on a little craton. Uh, this is a piece of crust. Think of it mm-hmm. like an early small continent called the Capval Craton. And a lot of research has been done to show that the Capval Craton was once connected to what's called the Pilbara Craton. Again, another mm-hmm. small piece of crust located in northwest Australia. If you stitch those two cratons back together, you would have what would have been the first continent on Earth. It mm-hmm. was a very, very early rendition. It was a small uh, continent probably no bigger than uh, you know the size of New Zealand, say, but mm-hmm. it was a very important setting for the de- deposition of these sediments. So, my my hypothesis, or my you know working theory uh, for the Pilbara for exploring there, is that if this process was alive and well in South Africa in the, in the Witwatersrand and the Capwell Craton, that there's a likelihood that sedimentary sequences in the Pilbara might host the same types of gold mineralization. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, that, hopefully that gives people a view of, of why we're chasing these deposits here. All right. That's, that was the, the hypothesis that took you to what is now known as the Beaton's Creek Project, which you're working on. You're really working on, on it and working quite rapidly towards at least the goal of, of producing very soon. 
Um, talk to talk to us about your plans for Beaton's Creek, and have it changed a little bit now with an improved equity market for gold shares? Also, with some work that you've done, uh, some metallurgical work that's suggesting that by spending a little bit more to get started, you can probably provide even more robust economics than the economics that you were looking at earlier. Talk to us a little bit about your plans going forward at Beaton's Creek, if you would, Quentin. Sure, sure thing. Look, the the gold sector is improving. That's part of the reason for the shift that we've experienced. But there's also some more uh, data that we've gathered here recently that, that tells us that the uh, gravity-only scenario we're, we're looking at could be enhanced greatly by looking at the addition of uh, carbon in each circuit onto a gravity processing uh, scenario. So basically what we're looking at now is shifting from gravity-only to a gravity plus CIL, carbon in leach uh, you know, technology, which is basically a you know, state of the art for Australia. This is uh, the way most gold ores are processed in Australia. Uh, what that means is that the, the recovery is enhanced greatly. We go from maybe 80, 80 to 85% recoveries up to, to basically to 98 or better. Uh, so it improves the overall economics of the project. Uh, dramatically, I would say. Uh, we have uh, studied this thing enough to know that, you know, um, the the return, we'll call it, the margins and, and overall return for the project are improved greatly using CIL. So uh, that shift has taken place in the last three months. About a week ago, I put out a news release, or we put out a news release here at Novo, uh, talking about our path forward. We, uh, because we're looking at shifting to gravity CIL, we are going to expand our our current resource base. Uh, we're looking to do that uh, through dr- drilling and additional trench sampling over the next couple of months. Uh, we expect to be able to um, to talk about resource expansion sometime maybe in in July or August of this year, and then upon that we will go ahead and complete our PFS. Uh, this would be a pre feasibility study. Uh, on a gravity CIL scenario with an expanded resource base that should uh, give us, you know, a lot, to, we'll call it a more conventional scale and size and, uh, you know, style of mining. Uh, the, the operation, uh, for people who, who don't know or first-time listeners, it's a very unique deposit. We're, we're really looking at layers of conglomerate. These are, uh, say, one-meter average thickness beds of conglomerate that are flat-lying, they're very near surface. Uh, where they're oxidized, they're very easy to mine. It's a free dig, uh, which means we don't need drilling and blasting, things like that. It should be, a, overall, a very cheap, a very cost-effective operation, and we are very much looking forward to advancing this toward production. We did raise $15 million about, I think the placement closed around three weeks ago today, and uh, with that money, we will be able to get through all these steps uh, very easily and take the project to its its ultimate conclusion, production. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you, so we're expecting. I guess those could be some drivers for the shares if you're coming out with some new with a new resource uh, calculation and, uh, and and also then economics. Uh, when did you say the economics uh, studies you expect, Quentin? The economic study will be uh, completed following the the resource update. So it'll be uh, later this year. I'm going to call it. Uh, you know, Tentatively October, something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's that's a pretty pretty fast uh, track. I would I would think that I guess you've done a lot of this work though previously. I guess as you were going forward, we which have, is enabling. You know, I would yeah. say we've we, we've done that this work as well as some permitting work as, as well, and so we're actually on a on a 
you know, up, the upper part of the learning curve. We're basically uh, able to complete this fairly quickly. On that note, uh, I would point out we've added a, a member to our team here recently. Uh, this gentleman's name is Chris Gotti. He is a an Australian-based, a Perth-based uh, permitter. He is an environmental scientist, expertise in permitting. He is now on our team and will help help guide the company through that process. Yeah, and you'll be adding some more managerial people too, I'm sure, because after all, going from exploration, that's your strength, of course, to production it takes a lot of different talents and takes a lot of a lot of manpower too, right? It takes a lot of people. It, it is. You know, we're making that quantum leap uh, as t- you know over the next few weeks. Say, I would uh, you know expect to be able to talk to people about some of these new additions. Uh, I think we we have the opportunity to build a very strong team, and you know ensure that we can get uh, to production. Make sure we meet our goal. Well, I know that you can't really talk definitively yet about economics. Uh, I mean, you gave a lot of the reasons why you expect this to be a very robust project. Uh, some of the mining, low mining costs and, and should be fairly simple metallurgy, standard metallurgy. You've gotten really high recoveries, as you suggested, 98% with CIL, uh, something like that. So I guess, though, the question in my mind, Quentin, is still to go into production these days, it's not a cheap thing. You mentioned you raised $15 million. You're going to have to raise some more to get into production, right? Yes. Look, there's a, there's a couple of avenues that uh, our new new path we're on uh, really opens up. First of, first of all, we have uh, warrants attached to the recent placement that, if exercised, would, would actually provide much of the capital uh, we, we think we're going to need for this mine. So mm-hmm. that's certainly one uh, possibility is that the warrants, the outstanding warrants out there could help finance most or even potentially all of the, the project. The second uh, alternative that opens up is because we are looking at a more conventional means uh, of processing. Uh, we, we do think there will be better interest in um, you know, forms of debt financing, things like that, that, uh, that could help us you know, make up the balance, we'll call it, of the capital we need. The, uh, the, you know, the debt financing around gold mining is always dependent on the health of the industry at that time. You know, when the market's very poor, like it was a couple of years ago, you could you'd be very hard-pressed to find any good deals, you know, any, any companies or banks or institutions willing to, to lend money. Uh, assuming, though, that the gold market is picking up here, and, and we think it is, I think we'll be in a very good position to, to finance the remaining capital for Beaton's Creek once we, we do make that decision. All right. Well, one other question I've got to ask you about, and I think that we've, we're just not really knowing very much about it yet, but you made an announcement recently that you picked up some ground, I don't know, it was a couple hundred kilometers west of Beaton's Creek. Uh, can you say anything about that? I think it's the Comet Well is the name of the project. Correct, yes. Um, so, you know, to give people a flavor for... Uh, you know, my background, I've, I'm an explorer. Uh, I've been looking at this Pilbara region, like I said, for another Itvadarshan now for about 12 years. And we we focus mainly on the eastern part of the Pilbara region. That's where most of the map conglomerates are. So the the driver was looking at the ge- geology and, and saying, okay, you know, where, where do we have some basins with conglomerates? Where should we go explore? So we focused in areas that were you know, that were mapped, definitive uh, conglomerate horizons. Now, about nine or ten months ago, I got wind that uh, local people near a town called Karartha 
were finding gold nuggets with metal detectors, and they were finding significant amounts. So we're talking about thousands of ounces of gold found with metal detectors. I kept my eye on it. I kind of investigated, and I found out, lo and behold, the gold was originating from conglomerates. Mm. Uh, this was wow. uh, an eye-opener because there are no conglomerates mapped in that particular area. Uh, upon further investigation, it became clear. We, we basically confirmed that it was coming from conglomerate, and we recognized that the conglomerates dipped in, inwards into the basin to the south of the, the location where the locals were working. So we've pegged uh, a very large area now uh, at a place we call Comet Well. It's just a geographic location about 40 kilometers south of Carrozner. And we've, we've now pegged uh, what I would say, you know, it's basically the entire down-dip extent of these conglomerates. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also done a, a deal with a local landholder that gives us some exposure to the outcropping conglomerates where these people are finding gold nuggets. I have been to the property. It's a very, very interesting gold occurrence. It was never recognized. This is a brand new discovery. And, you know, you think about places like Australia, you'd think they'd be picked over. Here we are with a brand new gold discovery uh, where gold nuggets are being found over eight kilometers of strike along conglomerates, ah. outcropping, mm. that nobody had mapped. I mean, that's wow. it's just mind-boggling. So it's, we're it's very excited about the, the potential of this thing. Wow. Uh, we do have some additional data that tells us these conglomerates likely do extend into the basin. We did some research, found a, uh, evidence of a historic drill hole 65 kilometers south of Comet Well that hit hit a, a reef, a gold-bearing conglomerate horizon. My goodness. At, at 12 grams per ton. Okay, so these this is a, a very, very interesting uh, prospect. It's very early days, but we have basically jumped in there, uh, greedily picked up as much land as possible, and we're looking uh, looking at, you know, a, potentially a very uh, interesting new discovery. All right, we'll have to leave it go at that, Quentin. But to be continued, hopefully we'll have you back sometime in the near future as some of these numbers start getting, well, if you start exploring and and having some assays for us. But, you know, Beaton's Creek by itself is very exciting, but this is uh, something new that has really, really got me excited, I must say. say. And if I I didn't already have so much of my portfolio in your stock, I'd be buying with both hands now, but I I just can't, good conscience, go beyond 20% of my holdings in any one company. So that's about it. Quentin, thank you so much for being with us. We do have to go now. It's commercial break time. We have another uh, wonderful guest coming on, so uh, we'll look to talk to you again soon. And, folks, that next guest I'm talking about is Mark Chandler of Brown Brothers Harriman. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Mark Chandler. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSR. RPF, respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. 
Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me for the first time Mark Chandler. Mark joined Brown Brothers Harriman in October 2005 as the global head of currency strategy, and he's been with them, still with them, and uh, a very prominent person on Wall Street. I see him frequently uh, on uh, various places like, uh, like Bloomberg and uh, CNBC, and he's been published in places like the Financial Times, Barron's, Euro Money, Corporate Finance. In foreign affairs, most of you probably have seen him one time or another on television. Um, he's written a book in 2009. He wrote uh, his first book was Making Sense of the Dollar. It was published by Bloomberg Press. Uh, but we want to talk to him today about his most recent book titled Political Economy of Tomorrow. That was published, uh, well, just recently. It's uh, on the market now. So welcome, Mark, and thanks for joining me. Thanks. It's always a pleasure. You know, I've watched you many times on television. I've listened to you on Bloomberg, with Thomas Keene in the morning and the like. And this is the first time that I've really had a chance to meet up with you uh, personally. Uh, you and I talked, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago on the phone. But it's really a pleasure having you. Uh, it seems, uh, if I understand, it was, uh, I believe, a dedication in your book. You said those who know we can, uh, that it's dedicated to those who know we can build a better world for more people because scarcity has been conquered, end of quote. Now, my first thought when I read that quote is, um, sure, for the perspective, from the perspective of, say, the top 1% of the population in the Western world, it may seem like scarcity has indeed been conquered. And even if you go down to the top 10% of America's population, where I believe Mrs. Taylor and I probably fit in, we can say that, uh, you know, all our basic needs, and indeed a lot more than that, have been met, for sure. But this is a time of income disparity in, in the United States, I, I think some have argued, like probably like no time before since the robber baron days of the 1920s. So even uh, America's middle class now is being, many of the middle class is being shoved down into the poverty levels. Uh, so it seems to me that um, for yourself and maybe others that are, you know, on Wall Street who are doing very, very well, Scarcity seems like a thing of the past, uh, but 
how about it for for most of us? I mean, for most people, uh, it doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, on some hand, I'd say that I, I am painfully aware of the disparity of income and wealth, and that's mm-hmm. what most people tend to focus on. And I don't want to minimize that, but I, I think partly I would say that there's a lot less disparity in terms of consumption. You think of the penetration rate of things that we take, we would take for granted today that our grandparents, our great-grandparents couldn't even dream of. Indoor plumbing. Yeah. Water. That, now, leaving aside Flint, Michigan, some other places in the U.S., maybe some other places in, in uh, high-income countries, we can turn on a water spigot and not get sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, uh, central heat. Uh, it's just amazing the things that we have. And, and proof of this is that not only rich people, but poor people are living longer. Mm-hmm. We've conquered many diseases. Now, I know there's some problems with diabetes coming back in the United States with our addiction to sugar. Uh, but uh, I'd say that in general, uh, the trend has been towards people living longer, greater quality of life. And the kind of surplus that I'm talking about is that earlier generations, think about what our grandparents had to do, six days a week, 12-hour days. Problem in the United States right now is that we, it might be that we are work, that we are working. The average work week is only about thirty four hours right now. Mm-hmm. Average work week, and so for me the kind of surplus. And so for me the problem is not one of production. We don't know how to produce enough things before. For instance, a large percentage of British men who volunteered for World War One were rejected because they suffered from malnutrition. Uh. We do not suffer as a people. Even when Lula was elected in Brazil. He was struck, he was like, I remember this, he was struck by the fact that he thought that his country didn't have enough food. And he found out that the problem was not enough food, but obesity was bigger <laughs> than, than starvation. And I'm, malnutrition, like eating the wrong foods, that's a different problem. So, I'm, so, I, so, I wanted, I, so for me, I wanted like, the, the surplus I'm talking about is that we can produce more goods than we know what to do with. We can mm-hmm. produce more food than we know what to do with. That's why I'm struck with, in the U.S., and in Britain, we waste half the food we get between no. the farm, the grocery store, and the family. And I'm guilty of it as well. I, I buy a loaf of bread on a weekend. I eat a couple of sandwiches. The family eats a few sandwiches, some toast. And the week comes, we still have half a loaf left. And we say, no, oh, time to get a fresh loaf. Yeah. So the, I think a lot of the surplus I'm talking about, we take for granted as all around us. Advertisement. Uh, think about what our, what our grandmothers might have done making quilts that is taking fabric that is no use for anybody scrap and sewing the scraps together things like that we don't, we don't even most people don't have to do anymore but you're right there still are a large number of people in the world who are living on $2 a day or less yeah, yeah I was just thinking I, I noticed I have a pair of socks a hole in the heel and uh, in the old days, uh, going back to the 1950s, my mother might have tried to sew that together, preserve the socks. I just toss them and go buy another pair. So, uh, I, your point is well taken. Uh, certainly, though, uh, what's happening is it's changing the way we're living our lives tremendously. This comes out very clearly in your book, and it is creating probably social tensions and problems. I mean, if you have fewer people working or people are working less, they're maybe not feeling as if they're worthwhile? Is that an issue that's, that's, that's coming about? Well, I think you do have, I, I know this is a problem in the U.S., where we have a large number of people. Uh, I think it was the Department of Labor had estimated 40% of the recent college graduates 
have jobs that don't require a college education for. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think about the large number of custodial engineers that have college degrees in New York. I have a brother-in-law who didn't go to college. He's an auto mechanic. But because of the incredible, uh, you know, there's more computer chips in a car that, yeah. than, la- than were in the lunar module that landed on the moon back in 69. <laughs> okay. So my, my brother-in-law, he needs to become a computer expert to fix cars, something that, sure. you know, you, you, know you, you can't just be a grease monkey anymore. Right. And so he's learning that. He's adapting to that probably. And that's, yeah, what, yes. that's what people need to do. Exactly. I think that uh, I think Joseph Stiglitz, he's got the Nobel Prize in Economics several years ago, teaches up at Columbia, and he said, we always knew that free trade produced winners and losers. He said, but we just assumed that the winners would compensate the losers. And I think that is the problem. The people are getting squeezed by the changing, and our society is changing so rapidly. The people who are getting squeezed by that change are not being assisted by the people who are coming out on top of that system. To me, that's the problem. It's not that the, it's not that the system's changing. It's that we're not doing we're, we're we're not as empathetic of a society as we might have been before. What you're essentially, if I'm understanding your thesis, is that uh, our problem the problem of capitalism isn't uh, isn't a shortage. It's a surplus. Uh, and you point out that you know techno- technological breakthroughs allow more productivity uh, per per man hour. Uh, yeah, which which has allowed all of us to live better, no question about it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was I think we, my wife and I were watching a movie about India over the weekend, and the abject poverty in some areas of India. Just you know, as you say, Americans aren't, and even Brazilians aren't going hungry. They're, you know, we have well more than we have to have, and yet there seems to be a thirst for more. I can't remember Mark other than. I think you're old enough to remember the Vietnam days. I certainly am. And I, I can't remember of a time when there was more sort of class consternation, anger towards certain people, angry division in this country, as I feel now, despite the fact, as you point out, that capitalism has served us so well, that, we've, that we have so much excess. What, what do you think is going on here? Why is that the case now? Yeah, I think that what's changing is that mobility is more difficult. So, for example, I am the first one in my family to go to college. Mm-hmm. My father was a plumber. My hands only get dirty these days if I get ink from the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> now, the thing is, though, about it is that my son is going to go to college now, and he, college degree will not guarantee him a middle-class, a stable middle-class income or middle-class like lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, is that uh, uh, the, the, the movement between classes. For me, uh, 50 years ago, 45 years ago, getting to, uh, get, going to college was a way to uh, rise my living standards. But my son, even if he goes to college, and even if he gets his bachelor's degree, he's not going to necessarily move up in class rate. He's not going to become, he's not going to become wealthier. Mm-hmm. And, and this is true of an increasing number of people who go to college. So, so college is not the key thing anymore. And I think that the other thing that's happening is that the, the people who used to be winning, that is people who look like me, white men, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are now not winning so much anymore. And in fact, mm-hmm. I'm just reading an article that says because of the uh, opiate uh, problem that we have, that white middle, cl- white middle class, middle aged men are dying at a, at a younger age than my, many minorities. Yeah. So the white man who used to be privileged in America, for, and, it's, and I'm not saying that he's not anymore, but less so than before. 
Mm-hmm. And this is, this is, I think, when you look at, like, uh, for example, both in the U.K. vote for Brexit and the U.S. election of Trump, the key, and it looks like also, I'm just looking at some of the demographic data for the uh, Macron victory in France, but mm-hmm. it looks like that the key variable is education, mm-hmm. more so than income. And so what happens then is that as people find out that their education is not guaranteeing them the better lifestyle, it scares them. And I think that you're right. There's this class angst, economic mm-hmm. insecurity, despite low, relatively low levels of unemployment, despite an economy that still seems to be chugging along, people are very economically insecure, not just for themselves. But I think this, I think, is the key point in the U.S. right now. Up until yeah. now, the, the next generation has been able to live better than the parents. The generation now, say, say since 1980, uh, born in 1980, by the time they're 30, in 2010, they, only half of them were richer than their parents. While if you were born in 1940, by the time you were 30 years old, 95% of Americans were richer than their parents. That is the problem. The, next gen- the American dream, a house, car, children who have an education, is out of the reach mm. of many Americans. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case. Um, you know, it's a paradox, isn't it? I mean, the, the capitalism, its weakness is its strength in a sense. That it, uh, it as you point out, um, capitalism builds and, and those at the top get richer and richer. And uh, you, you, you have more capital formation um, that is good up to a point. But then as you point out, things change. Um, you talk in your book about well, you call it the Bretton Woods cash register and the Reagan, the Reagan-Thatcher cash register periods. Uh, talk to us about those, about about those, about that concept, those concepts, and uh, and where are we today with regard to that? Yeah, sure. So uh, it turns out that there's a guy who works for the same bank that I work for now, Brown Brothers, uh, and in 1911, 1912, he was working for the working for the same bank, and he had a vision. Of what the twi- of what the, basically the 20th century was going to be like, and it was based on this idea. Because remember what happened uh, up until 1865, the U.S. is divided by the Civil War. After mm-hmm. the Civil War, the U.S. now has a national economy. The shoemaker in Boston is now competing with the shoe store in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Conan's idea was, and this was popular, a common idea, late 18th century, I'm sorry, late 19th century, early 20th century. Just he called it capital congestion. When you have, if you have too much oil, we know what happens. If the, if the supply of oil exceeds the demand for it, the price falls. Same thing with pork. China has called it their, uh, their uh, swine herd, and the price of pork rises. Same thing with money. We have too much money, so what happens? The, the rate of profit falls, or interest rates fall. And this is what Conan's idea was. This was a problem. This was the problem of capitalism. And the solution for it is to trade, is to export, is to build a social safety net domestically. We do all these things. He envisioned these things. He, he, what he envisioned was very much like the open door, was very much like the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the general agreement to talk and talk, GATT, which, uh, you know, WTO, the predecessor. He had mm-hmm. this vision. And, this is, and so I think that what happened was the Great War Wars interrupted this capital congestion. But... By uh, shortly after, say during the Bretton Woods era, the cash register—it's already the surplus is already beginning to build. Mm-hmm. And when that breaks down, it breaks down because of this, this too much capital. 
mm-hmm. and, so, and, and the system, the political system, the social relations are too rigid. And so when the system collapses, it, it can only collapse in a crisis because no one's, everybody's reluctant to give up the status quo. And so when the crisis comes, we don't know what's going to happen. But then Reagan and Thatcher, about a decade later, their vision is basically turning this Charles Cohen on its head. Rather than the U.S. exported surplus, Reagan and Thatcher's innovation would make, let the Anglo-American economies like the U.S., the U.K., and Australia have them run large trade deficits, absorb the world surplus. But, of course, you know, when we absorb the world surplus of goods, we have to import capital as well. Yeah. So the U.S., and for the most part, I mean, the U.S. just because it's so big, but the U.K., the rest of the Anglo-American uh, world was running trade deficits, current account deficits, absorbing the world surplus. Capital became uh, more mobile, became allowed to trade internationally. I mean, I think about the currency market, which is what I track closest. Yes. Five trillion dollars a day. We, hmm. it's, it's, uh, uh, this week, we will trade, current turnover in the foreign exchange market will be enough to finance global trade for a year. Mm. And so what, I think what happened then is Reagan and Thatch understood of a surplus capital, and they said, let, us, let the Anglo-American economies absorb it, but that's not going to be good enough. What are we going to do with it? So what we do is we create a huge financial superstructure. So instead of, because we don't need the money to produce goods, we take the capital out of the industry, take that industrial capital, and we put it in this realm of circulation, where it's buying, paper, buying and selling paper assets. Mm-hmm. What we found out in the great financial crisis was that surplus of capital that's moving around five trillion days in FX market, moving around bonds and bitcoins, all this money that's in circulation itself has a feedback loop, and that crisis or excesses there hits the real economy. And so now I, I would put us now in a period where we still are plagued by the surplus capital and so much surplus. Think about what the uh, countries do. Uh, if farmers in the U.S. grow too much corn or too much wheat, what happens? The government starts a program where they buy that surplus and they warehouse it. They keep it in a silo. Mm-hmm. Well, I suggest in the book that that is essentially what we, the central banks are doing with capital. We have too much capital, and so the, so the central banks buy it and they stick it into their vaults keeping the capital off the market, trying to push up prices of financial assets. And so I, I think that we, so out of the ashes of the Bretton Woods system came Reagan-Thatcher. And now that the Reagan-Thatcher model, I think, ended with the great financial crisis, that represented like the logical end of that strategy, mm-hmm. now we're a bit lost. We, we're not sure what the next cash register is going to be. What is that model of accumulation that's going to allow the social classes to reproduce themselves. And by social classes reproducing themselves, I mean the middle class has to be secure. And capital has to be able to reproduce itself. Or if the classes can't reproduce themselves, and the reason, I should say, the reason that capital is not able to reproduce itself is because interest rates, the return on capital is too low. Right. There's already still about $7 trillion of bonds globally, negative interest rates. To me, uh, that's just like, it's still hard for me to like, get my head around it. Yeah. Negative interest rates. And not just, it's not just, we're not just talking about overnight money. We're talking about you want to lend money. You want, you're in Italy and you want to protect some of your savings, so you're going to lend it to the government. They charge you like 50 basis points to lend them money for two years. Yeah. Insane. And so for me, yeah, so for, yeah, so for me, this, this idea of this, uh, you know, where we are now is that uh, we've got this surplus capital still. We don't know what to do with it, but we don't have a, we don't, 
You know, when, uh, when Bretton Woods collapsed and Nixon announces uh, price controls, mm-hmm. little did we know that Reagan and Thatcher were about less than a decade away. And same thing now. We, we, I'm not smart enough to come up with the new cash register. But what I try to do in the book is identify certain things that's going to have, like m- women, like work and power, more feminized. And that means partly more networks, less hierarchies. I look at the relationship between employee and employers and see how that work relationship is changing. You know, when I, was, when I began my career, I just wanted to get into work before my boss did and leave as soon as his car pulled out of the driveway. <laughs> and uh, now I see people want to do things like work-life balance. I don't think Bill Gates or Henry Ford would have a clue what that means. Yeah. That's what the next, next people, this generation wants. And it's partly the influence of women uh, coming from the non-market economy and joining the market economy in huge numbers. And I also look at the state and citizens. And that lets me think about the basket of goods that we, that we get as citizens. And what, what, what's our civic responsibility? What's our civic duty? I don't hear about those words anymore. I just hear about, I don't like to call them entitlements. I think those are the rights of citizenship, that basket of goods. But what do we, what do we have to do in exchange for that? In the U.S., I, it looks to me like the only thing you really have to do, it's hard to get out of jury duty. But mm-hmm. there's ways out of your taxes. You don't have to serve a military time anymore. You don't even have to, volu- you have to do any volunteer activity. And our civic society is, has eroded. Yes, I agree with that. And how do we get that back? Because, you, you know, um, if it's all just about what can I get out of the system without putting something back into it, uh, that's not a very healthy scenario, is it? No, but I think that uh, what happens is the U.S. has this non-statist way of doing things. So if you look at what, uh, you look at what Americans give philanthropic activity, and it's not, I'm not just talking about rich people like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. I'm talking about the average person, how much they actually are giving to charities mm-hmm. or whatever their cause is. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. And so I wonder if the center, so the way the story I would tell is that in the uh, early part of the uh, 20th century, when more women uh, were not part of the market economy, it's not like they sat at home and watched soap operas. Yeah. They were building civic society. These organizations, PTAs, the uh, uh, Anti-Cruelty Society, uh, I think about all these uh, Jane Addams and Dorothy Day and these, uh, uh, these, these women who really built civic society. Now the women have to go to work because, not just because they want to uh, sort of, be affirmed as, as, as people, but also because the household, the man's wages, no longer keeping pace with inflation or productivity. To make ends meet, the woman had to go to work. Instead of, we do a good job of turning, virt, uh, turning necessities into virtues. Yeah. So I think that the, the center of a civic society now might not be the household. The household yeah. has, been like, has been emptied. I see this at, at where I work, but I see this at other large organizations. We have all kinds of, all kinds of activities for people to volunteer teach kids about reading, uh, make ba- ba- fill up backpacks for school supplies at the beginning of the semester, uh, 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 building homes, uh, all kinds of things, uh, of activities that the, that the employer organizes for the employees. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, you certainly are, are giving us some optimism, some reasons to be optimistic. I, I think there's lots of questions that remain to be answered, and you're saying you don't have the answers for us in the book, but you certainly provide some great ideas and some things to think about unconventionally, 
Thank you for that. It's really appreciated. I would like to ask you, uh, well, we really don't have time, but just one, where's the dollar going now, Mark? You, I mean, here we are, we're seeing the dollar breaking through 99, 97, 96 and change now. Uh, as the expert on foreign exchange, is king dollar going to remain king for a long time or is it going to have some weakness here? Yes, yeah, so I think that we have seen some weakness in the last, uh, actually since the Federal Reserve hiked rates in the middle of March. And partly this is because of some problems we have in the U.S., partly because the news stream has gotten better in Europe. But if there's one word that still drives my bullish dollar view, it's divergence. And that is what we're going to see happen is that the Federal Reserve is likely to continue to raise interest rates uh, once or to- two more times this year, begin shrinking its balance sheet mm-hmm. well before the ECB can, can even stop buying assets or the Bank of Japan. They're still expanding their balance sheets. So I recognize that uh, the near-term outlook for the dollar is probably a bit softer, though the downside momentum might be feeding a little bit. Uh, the problem right now for a lot of people is that the bad news continues to drip from uh, Washington. And yeah. it's not the news itself. But it's, what it really is, is what does this mean about the economic program, which was already, right, Mark, people already had questions about it and some legislative challenges. Mark, we're going to have to leave it go at that. We're out of time. I'm so sorry. Thanks for being with us. It's, your ideas are great. Uh, thanks for sharing them with us. Well, folks, next week we have Dan Oliver, uh, hedge fund manager in the in the gold sector, will be with us, and Ian Klassen, the president of C- and CEO of GMB Minerals, will be with us. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. TriMetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. TriMetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. TriMetals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. TriMetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com.